Sister. teaching or describing and um, talking to people that we want to start, we want to go with the talk about maternity and paternity yeah. rather than masculinity and femininity um, or like start there because that's like the fullness of, um, of man or of woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm kind of wondering like how, how does that work um, in the sense that, that just kind of talking about well, we have to be daughter, we have to be son before we can be spouse, before we can be, uh, before we can be mother or father. And so, so I guess like understanding that, that there's a, there can be that uh, negativity from just talking about like, well, guys do this and girls do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there a way to, to talk about it? Um, Okay, so since my computer's not working, I'm going to do like off-book lesson for the first hour. So um, I'm going to answer everything you just said, but I'm going to take a little trip to get there, okay? All right, so when we talk about identity, like original solitude is all about identity and finding our identity in God. Right? That's where we find our identity. And we live in a culture that's very confused about identity. And even the way that we talk about it sometimes is confusing. And sometimes we don't know what we're talking about when we talk about identity. And there are distinctions that we need to make because the rest of the culture makes them. And the, the distinctions make sense. They're not just like made-up distinctions. Okay, so And this kind of also covers responding to questions of gender identity. and what gender confusion means. Um, Because we do have, whether we like it or not, we have kids in our godparent groups, we have kids in our high schools, we have college students who have gender confusion. When I was in Rome, there was a student in the Rome program that I had worked with, and he really considered himself gender neutral. And so there's a lot of confusion about that. So there's four distinctions that are very helpful for us to like wrap our head around what we're talking about. And these are the same language that the culture speaks. So there's sex, which refers to one's body type. Okay, sex refers to our body type. So if we use the word sex, we're talking about whether or not somebody has a male or a female body. And that's it. Just their body. Then there is identity. We can say gender identity. Okay? Now, the secular world refers to gender identity as 
the deepest feeling that somebody has about who they are. And we want to go, bleh. <laughs> the deepest feeling somebody has about who they are. So identity refers to a feeling. Now, what does it refer to? What kind of a feeling does it refer to? So this is a legitimate question. Okay, it, if it does refer to a feeling, what does that mean? Now, somebody will say it means that a man feels like he's a woman. But that makes no logical sense. Because I have no idea what it feels like to be a woman. I can have no perspective on what it feels like to be a woman. Any more than I can have any idea what it feels like to be Bishop Conley or what it feels like to be my dad, or what it feels like to be my dog, Rover. I don't know what it feels like to be another person. I only know what I feel like. I only know my own emotions. So if it's a feeling, it's probably not a feeling about, like, I feel like I'm a woman. But it might be a feeling about my body type. It is possible to have a feeling about my body type. So I cannot like what it feels like to be a man. Or I can not like my body. And if I don't like my body, then the best like language I might have to describe that is I feel like a woman. But it's a feeling about a body type. And then there is attraction or this would be sexual orientation. Right? And an attraction means that I moved towards somebody. Okay? I moved towards somebody. There's some particular thing that captivates me and I move towards it. And attractions can be either sexual or non-sexual. Okay, so there's such a thing as a non-sexualized same-sex attraction, which we all experience, and it's called admiration. Right? When we admire somebody, we're attracted to them. We want to be around them. We want to learn from them. We want to be their friend. We're attracted to them. And they can be an attractive person or charismatic person. And there's nothing sexual about it. But I would posit that because of the great emphasis on tolerance and great emphasis on everybody's the same. Everybody wins. Everybody gets a trophy. Nobody's better than you. Everybody's good. We've lost our definition of admiration. Like As a culture, we don't use this word very much. 
Like, when was the last time any of us said, I really admire so-and-so? We don't really say that very much. When somebody's better than us at something, we say, yeah, but they're bad at X, Y, Z, all this stuff. In order to admire somebody, they have to be better than you at something. They have to be more virtuous than you. They have to be a better athlete than you. They have to be more studious than you. Because we admire people that have something we don't have, but we want. During the Edwardian period, admiration, this kind of uh, relationship, non-sexual, same-sex attraction, was a big thing. Men would sit around with other men smoking and drinking and just engage right. in conversation for the wee hours of the morning. Right. Um, without anything sexual going on. Right. But today, we don't really have that. Yeah. And so young people experience admiration and they don't know what to do with it. I'm not saying this is every single case of somebody who questions their sexual identity or orientation, but I think that it's a problem that we don't use this word. Right? Like my favorite admiration example is Rocky IV. Okay, so in Rocky IV, Rocky is going to fight Ivan Drago and they're getting ready to walk in and Polly's with him, and Polly says, you know, Rock, I'm not really an emotional guy, but I just want you to know that I love you, and if I could unzip myself and step outside and become somebody else, I would want to be you. Right? Like, that's admiration. And so we should be teaching our young people about admiration. Like, what is admiration? Write an essay on somebody you admire. It can be saints, but it could also be like their friend because they probably need to verbalize the fact that they like admire their friend or their dad or their uncle or somebody like that and to learn to compliment people that are good at things and not feel like because somebody's good that makes me bad. How, how do you teach that? Like that I, that's a definite problem. You, know? you say that, then you're better than me, then I'm not good. You're just teaching that. What did we say yesterday? Everybody is unique, unrepeatable. You know, unique, unrepeatable. I th- forget the other word that was on that slide. But, like, they, we all have our own gifts. You know, St. Paul says, like, the hand is not the foot, is not the eye, etc. Like, we all have our own gifts. And... And we should learn to admire those things in other people. Like, I admire Father Mark Sizza very much because he's way more disciplined about his prayer life than I am. And he has, like, some gifts that I don't have. You know, I have had great admiration for some mother of my classmates in that way. Um, And so even when we can have those attributes of admiration. Now, there's a fourth distinction that needs to be made, and this is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. Sister. It seems like it's a reversible of everybody trying to be like someone else, too. Like the young people are trying to put their efforts into trying to be like someone else that they don't really admire. That complements their own personal talents. Does that make sense? Go on. Well, the admiration, like the reverse of that, would be you're all trying to be like someone else. Doesn't really exist. Like Elsa. Mm-hmm. Like Elsa. Well, yeah, I suppose that's true. Mm-hmm. Instead of 
recognizing their own personal mm -hmm. Yeah. And we almost try to force them to, to, to be somebody else <clears throat> instead of looking at their own personal Right, so uh, so all of like admiration has to take place within the context of a right relationship, where like you recognize you're an individual in relationship with another person, and you have your own gifts that you bring to the table, and you complement each other, etc. Like friendships do develop because you have common interests, but admiration is something that develops with somebody that you don't that's not the same as you that you're attracted to. Okay, the fourth distinction is arousal. So arousal just means sexual arousal. And arousal can take place either with admiration or without admiration in a relationship or without, like arousal just happens to people. And as I have worked with a lot of different people and really talked to people who experience same-sex attraction, what they often would say is, that they're attracted to somebody, but they don't want to be. Well, then you're not really attracted to them, but what they experience is arousal when they're around a person that is nice to them. And because of the over-sexualized culture, the hyper-sexualized culture, a lot of our young people struggle with interpreting like what arousal is and what it means. And also because our parents... Some of our parents are doing a great job. Some of our parents are doing no sex education. And so kids don't know. They don't understand what's going on with their own bodies. And so they tend to give too much value to arousal. And so they experience arousal. because Sometimes it's just an exciting thing happens, especially with a boy, because boys always know when they're aroused. And... It just, they can experience this in a wrong context and then they have a lot of shame about it and then it causes all this questioning about their identity. You know, so our identity is, it has to do with this feeling about my body type, okay? And I think these distinctions are important to make because it helps us to lay out exactly what we're talking about because it's possible, and I do this with high school kids, it's possible for somebody to have man body type, Feminine identity, heterosexual attraction. So I was at a meeting, a 12-step meeting when I was home. And I took my sister. We go to Al-Anon meetings sometimes when we're home. And, uh, and there was this person walked into the meeting, and they have one of those buttons, and it has, like, the male-female symbol combined and all of that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? And so this was somebody that was male body type, obviously, like, feminine gender identity but when he talked about his partner it was a woman and I was like whoa what is going on and he had the best advice for everybody in the group so my sister was like I never thought on Christmas my best advice would come from a transgender person at an Al-Anon meeting <laughs> but like that exists and like people in our culture we don't always realize that exists you know like Bruce Jenner is not homosexual. Like he's still attracted to women, but changed most of his body because he feels like God made him a woman and has never felt comfortable about being a man. So, and our identity is also received 
not achieved. Okay, our identity is received, not achieved. Could you say, what, what does that mean? That our identity is received, not achieved? Yeah. It sounds nice. <laughs> it means that we receive our identity from somebody else. We don't make our own identity. We receive our identity from somebody else. Like, from the time you're a child, you receive your identity from your mother and your father. They give you your name. You don't make up your own name. You always answer that name. Somebody says, who are you? I'm Father Kokali. Well, that name was given to me by the bishop. But you receive your identity from somebody else. Religious communities where you take on a religious name, you receive your name from your superior oftentimes. Right? You receive your identity from somebody else. So, like in my own experience, and... Yeah, I'm like the most transparent person about most things. So my own experience was that growing up in my family, I had some attachment issues. Okay? I didn't know that word, attachment. I'm going to talk about attachment too because attachment plays into all of this discussion. And so I had weak masculine identity when I was a kid, which means that I was always the last one picked to be on the team because I wasn't very athletic. I didn't have a lot of guy friends. I remember being in kindergarten and I rather would play house with all the girls than like drive trucks around on the floor. And I remember thinking to myself, I just like hanging out with girls. Like what's wrong with me? Um, and then as I got into junior high school, I continued to have that kind of weak identity. In high school, I questioned that about myself. Like I questioned whether or not I might you know, be gay when I was in high school. Now, like right now, most people think I was probably like quarterback of the football team and all of this stuff because I'm a fairly confident person. But in high school, I was not. I was super insecure. I remember being in gym class playing basketball, like, and every time it was my time to shoot, there would be like this jock behind me who would say names, like derogatory names, um, labeling me as somebody who had same-sex attraction. And... And so that was always weak for me. And then I went to West Point, and I still didn't quite feel like I fit in all the time. And I thought that if I went to West Point, then like, I would develop this masculine identity. Um, didn't quite take yet. And then I went to Ranger School. And in Ranger School, I received my masculine identity. I like received my identity. But it wasn't because I could do 12-mile road march. And it wasn't because of the infantry barbecue. Okay, So we, we had this infantry barbecue when we branched. So at West Point, you branch, and you get branch night. So I branched infantry because it was the hardest thing I could think of to do. And I was always trying to find my limits. And so I branched infantry, and we had an infantry barbecue, which is like, man, barbecue. So there's like... 18 kegs of beer, two sides of beef, seven pigs, and we just ate meat and drank beer. And we took our crossed rifles that are on that pins in the back, you know, they have like those backs, you put them on your uniform. We just like no shirts, crossed rifles in our chest, running around, like slamming them into each other's chest and saying hua a lot. So that was infantry barbecue. 
but <laughs> infantry barbecue did not make me a man. It holes in your chest. <laughs> I had holes in my chest. It was like yellow for weeks. But um, when I was in ranger school and I got to Florida phase, there was a guy named Dave Parks who I admired because he was like a lot tougher than me, and I knew that. And he came up to me and he said, do you want to be my ranger buddy? Which meant he wanted me to have his back, and he was saying that he would have my back. And he accepted me. So masculinity is received when a young man is accepted by a group of men that he admires. And that's like where we receive that identity. It's like when you're accepted into that. So a lot of us talk about, like we think about things like Indian boys who go on a vision quest and things like that, right? Like they go out and, and then when they're back, because they accomplish this task, then they're considered to be a man. But that masculinity is actually received when they're accepted into this group of men. And maybe the standard for acceptance was you accomplish this task. But our confidence comes from being accepted by this group of people that we admire. And, and I think this is actually a problem in the church because we have a lot of, like, man-night things, especially on college campuses. And the man-night things are like, okay, so we're going to grow beards and dr- smoke pipes and talk about philosophy and try to reinvent, like, Chesterton's time period. But there's not sort of this idea that I'm accepted by a group of people that I admire. And we try to do all these things in order to become like what we think a man is. But it really comes in that acceptance. So this also plays into the idea that you're a son before you can be a spouse, before you can be a parent. Because being accepted, that's in that relational dynamic of being a son. Right? Our insecurities come from not being accepted by others. Right? So I think this is really an interesting thing to reflect on in, with regard to Bruce Jenner, and this is just my own like, editorial on it, because like, who in the world could possibly be admired by Bruce Jenner? Like, who is there for him to admire? He is the manliest man on the planet in 1976. Like, there's no man on the planet who's better than him at something. Like, he's the best athlete in the world. And then he's, like, sought after by women. He's on TV shows. He's in movies. He's on the cover of Playgirl magazine. He, like, did everything that stereotypically we think men do. Or men, like, oh, I want to be like them. And everybody wanted to be like Bruce Jenner. But who does Bruce Jenner want to be like? Well, there's nobody. And so did he ever have that experience of being accepted by a group of men that he admires? I don't know. But what did he actually get out of all of this publicity? He's accepted. And the whole world has to accept him. Because if you don't, then you're a bad person. It's just fascinating. And I say that out of like love. 
you know, because if I had anything to say to Bruce Jenner, it would be, you are a beloved son and always have been, even if you were confused about who you were. And you should have never had to be afraid of expressing that. Because he also grew up with some attachment issues when he was a kid. Like he flunked second grade because he was dyslexic. And if you have dyslexia, then you probably grow up in a world where you feel like you're different from everybody else and there's something wrong with me. Like somebody made a mistake when they made me. And there can be that feeling of insecurity. Um, because we don't grow up in attached relationships. And, and so, what time is it? Okay, so I'm going to talk about attachment a little bit too with regard to all of this. And then Patty, can I do that first and then take your question? Okay. So, so we have like all of these things, okay? And if you have questions about that later, we can go over them. When I taught this to 8th graders at St. Teresa's, they all understood this actually and it answered a lot of their questions. Because they didn't realize how complicated human beings actually are. And it helped to like confuse them enough to realize that they didn't really know all the answers already. Because <laughs> it's really complicated and our temptation is to give an easy answer, but the easy answer doesn't always congrue with the person that we're talking to. So when we talk about attachment and so this is all from um, a psychologist named John Bowlby. This, I don't have slides on this, so... Okay, so John Bowlby is a psychologist from like the 1940s, 50s. And so his approach to psychology was like knowing that for Freud... Everything is about sex and drives and core drives and things like this, right? For Freud, everything's about sex. So, Bowlby comes along and he realizes that, like, Freud will talk to adults and then he'll extrapolate from psychoanalysis, like, something that went wrong in their childhood, usually something about sex or shame. And so, Bowlby starts to study children directly instead of studying adults and thinking about what happened when they were children. So he starts just looking at children. And he starts to recognize patterns of behavior in children. And then he gets into etiology and studying like ducks and like how ducks follow each other and things like that. Like the, there's a monkey experiment where they had like a bottle and a wire thing and then like something soft. And then they would like scare the monkey and see where he went. Like did he go to the food or did he go to the thing that was soft that he could grab onto? And he went to the thing that he could grab onto. Right? Which means that our core drive is not nourishment, it's actually attachment. Because lots of people would theorize that the reason children are so attached to their moms is because the mom's the one who feeds them. But it's, it's not about that, it's about like attachment to this person. And so, looking at attachment... And the brain is really fascinating. So there's this great book called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder by a guy named Philip Flores. And I read this when Jesus wanted me to learn more about addiction. So in the brain, the way the brain functions is the brain develops in utero. And you have this core part of your brain which is in charge of your fight-or-flight reflex. It's like the part of your brain that says, I need to either eat this 
or run away from this or kill this or I don't know. I'm trying to think of a nicer way to say it. Or express conjugal love with it. Okay? <laughs> so that's the part of your brain that says that. But it's also in charge of your emotional regulation. It's in charge of your emotional regulation. So, and then you have like your prefrontal cortex, and this is where like judgment, reason, all that happens. I know there are mental health professionals in the room, so if I get this wrong, tell me afterwards, Jody. All right. So, you have these two parts of your brain. Now, the way attachment develops is this, that when your whole emotional regulation, it's all formed in utero in relation to a person. So, like when a baby is born into the world and they get into some kind of emotional distress, they usually send out a distress signal comes from this part of the brain that the brain interprets as distress, and the baby cries because they have a distress signal. And usually there's one person, if she comes, can calm the baby down, which is mom. Because of the attachment that exists between the child and the mother that started at conception, it didn't start like after the baby was born and we go to the baby. It starts at conception. Gabriel Marcel in reflecting on motherhood and fatherhood, just philosophically says motherhood is primordial, which means it starts at conception. Fatherhood starts at about age three. You know, because it's about age, it's farther along that the child actually distinguishes the father as a different person than the mother. The father starts to move in and separate the child from the mother, etc. But in, in the initial stages of life, that attachment exists between the child and the mother. And so when mom comes... The emotional regulation is answered, and the child calms down. So when I go visit my niece, and my niece is crying, I pick up my niece, and does nothing for her. <laughs> she just tries her best to get away from me until I give her to my sister-in-law, and then shh, everything's okay. So there's actually a neural pathway, a neural pathway that forms between these two things. In St. Thomas, he calls it your cogitative power that takes two things and puts them together. So you have emotional dysregulation or emotional distress and immediately we want mom to come. Because if mom comes, mom has the magic and everything's good. So a five-year-old falls down and scrapes their knee says, I want my mom. Soldiers on the battlefield who are dying say, I want my mom. And this neural pathway forms. And as it forms, it's kind of like walking in the woods. So you're walking back and forth, and it digs a trench in your brain and makes a very strong correlation between emotional distress and mom. So if that happens consistently throughout the first three to five years of life, usually that person grows up to be a secure person. A secure person is a person who trusts people. They know that. People will be there for them. They ask for help. They ask for directions. They, <laughs> this is what they do. Okay, they read the directions to things. This is what an this is what a secure person does. They know that people will help them. That people will be there for them, and they ask for help, and they have no problem with that. Now, sometimes mom comes. Sometimes mom doesn't come. 
And so if there is inconsistency, and the inconsistency can be from various things. The inconsistency can be mom had postpartum depression, and so she wasn't always coming. Sometimes, like the youngest kid in a huge family, they have insecure attachment because when they're a baby, it like was all these different people that came when they're in distress. And there wasn't a single person that took care of them. Dr. Benish has done a lot of research on adopt or on daycare and institutional daycare and how institutional daycare, a lot of times there's a different care provider even within the course of a day. And so a child doesn't have one person that they learn is going to be there for them to answer their needs when they're in distress. Now, when I say answer my need when I'm in distress, what am I talking about? I'm born in the state of entrust myself to my mom. Right? It's that filial identity. So if this is insecure, there can be three kinds of insecure attachment styles. Right? And this, this is good just like for dealing with your kids probably. Now these are the three that I'm going to use. Sometimes people name like eight. Sometimes they name six. Sometimes there's different things. Right? So the first one, generally speaking, is the avoidant person. The avoidant person says, people are untrustworthy, so I don't need people. They give one-syllable answer to things. They don't get excited about things. They don't really engage in relationships because they don't actually believe people care about them. So if they don't care about them, I don't care about you. So they don't read the directions to things. They don't ask for help. They tend to like isolate. Sometimes, like I always say to seminarians, sometimes they're avoidant attachment styles and they think that they're monks. I'm just really spiritual. But they actually don't trust people. The second kind of person is the fearfully attached person. The fearfully attached person says, people aren't trustworthy, so I need to force them in order to get them to make my, meet my needs. So these are like children who have separation anxiety. Mom leaves the house, everything's wrong. Um, people who are people-pleasing people, they do things for you so that you do things for them. Uh, people who just like need you, right? Like when you have those friends and you're like, they're so needy, like they're always needing something from me. Okay, so fearfully attached person. And then the third, I'm just going to call ambivalent. So what happened with that second one? What happens with them? I mean, no, what, what caused? Like the first one you said, the mom wasn't always there. The mom wasn't always there. Yeah, and then the second one, the same thing? Yeah, the same thing. It's just like how you, how how you, how you would deal absence. with it, how you cope with the absence. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. So temperament. Um, yeah, we can call it temperament. Some people use temperament also like it's a locked-in thing that you always have, but temperament moves. So... Then you have ambivalent and ambivalently attached people. Basically, like, they care, they don't care. Um, like, the way I describe this person is if they're with you, they engage with you. But then if you leave, they don't, like, keep in touch with you. So that's how I was. I talked about yesterday how I don't really keep in touch with people over time or distance. It's hard for me. Um, when I was in the military, this works. Because everybody moves all the time, and you just pick up with people where you left off, and it's awesome. But then I went to the seminary, and it doesn't work very well because people just think I'm mean. You know, there's one guy I'm in touch with from the seminary. 
And the only reason is that he's a fearfully attached person. So he's always calling me <laughs> to make sure I'll stay, keep being his friend. All right. So, and I'm thankful that he does. So like these become distortions in our identity as a son or a daughter. And these happen at a, on a natural level, just like a psychological level. They become distortions in my ability to entrust myself to another person. You know, and we'll see that in young people. Right? So also like what happens, and this is related to the question from yesterday about like psychology and whether this like theological approach can actually like have a psychological healing effect. Yes, it can. By continually pointing out like that we're called to be sons and daughters of God, it will probably agitate people who have these kind of attachment styles and call them to some kind of conversion. And they have to realize that our Lord is always trustworthy. That person that, that, that responds, what happens if in a child's early development there's a fairly clean handover from one person to another? Does that, is that going to affect it? or um, you know? What do you mean a clean handover? Uh, when my oldest son was born, mm-hmm. the first year and a half, mm-hmm. I was that person. Mm-hmm. Then I went and I had I started to go to work and my wife was mm-hmm. that person and it was a pretty clean handle. Right, so you were both in the house the whole time. Yeah, my wife was working. Right, but there wasn't a there wasn't like a break. It wasn't like somebody just came in randomly, no, no. or another person came in randomly, or another person came in randomly. Mm-hmm. Right, like. You were both there the whole time. One of you was more consistent than the other one, then the other one became more consistent. Mm-hmm. And you probably just have to like look at that. Because it depends. Like every situation is probably a lot different. And like the transition periods at home are super important. So there's a psychologist I heard speak at a conference at the National Catholic Family Life Ministers Conference. And he talked about how like when the child wakes up in the morning when they leave to go to school, when they come home from school, and before they go to bed at night, like those are the most important times of the day to give hugs. Because it helps in the transition. It's like you're going to break this attachment bond, then you're going to reestablish this attachment bond. And even if like a child was in daycare, say like the mom always knows what happened at daycare that day, and he just finds out, like, mom always knows what happens when I'm there. That might help with his attachment. Like, he knows that his mom's keeping him in mind while he's there. One of the most significant things somebody said to me when I was 37 years old was that when I was younger and I stayed with this other family that raised me till I was three, um, my mom called every day and they put her on the phone with me while she was in the hospital when she was dying. But I never knew that happened. But just the knowledge that that happened, like, I don't know. It just, like, sort of, like, helped to build that security. It's, like, the knowledge that somebody was always there. And, and so in the spiritual life, too, right, one of the messages that we have to proclaim constantly, it's proclaiming the kerygma, is Jesus has always been there in your life. St. Paul says that. Right? He who knew me from my mother's womb called me to himself. 
And so when I asked that question, like, who's Jesus? Who are you to Jesus? You know, who are you to Jesus? You're somebody that he's always been pursuing for your entire life. Because sometimes I'll ask people, like, when did you come to know Jesus? Well, I came to know Jesus when I was a sophomore in college, and I went on a koinonia, and it was amazing. When did Jesus come to know you? From conception? Yeah. Like, our Lord has always been pursuing you. And that kind of proclamation of the gospel, right, it's corrective. It's corrective. And this is the way that the gospel was always proclaimed. You know, in, when we read scripture, how often does it talk about us being children of God? Like, constantly. When we read John's letters, what word does it always start with? Every single Sunday. Children, beloved. Always, beloved, beloved, beloved. When I was a seminarian, coming straight out of the army, I was like, <laughs> why do they keep saying beloved? Why do they keep saying children? I hate child of God. Like People are like, I'm a child of God. I hated that. Because I had no reference point for it. I didn't know what it meant. It sounded like fluffy language. It's actually not fluffy language. It's actually the hardest thing any of us does is really surrender our lives to God because he's trustworthy. It is hard to surrender our life to our Lord and recognize that he's trustworthy. It's hard like when you're in distress to turn and just say, like, Jesus, you're welcome into my life right now to relieve my distress. It's a lot easier to say, what's on the tube? How can I distract myself? I don't like this feeling. I don't like this feeling of emotional dysregulation or this unsettledness I feel, so I need something to address it. And what happens when people develop addictions, because people who have these kind of attachment styles are more likely to develop an addiction because there's not a person who's there to regulate their emotions, and so they turn to like TV, alcohol, drugs, pornography, and then the neural pathway forms in the brain between emotional distress and those things. So those things become an automatic response when I'm in emotional distress. Instead of saying, I want my mom, people say, I want a drink, I want to watch TV, I am having an impure thought right now. Right? And that's an aspect that's important for us to remember when we're teaching chastity is that impure thoughts for a lot of our young people, because they're exposed to impure things when they're very young, their impure thought is simply their brain's automatic response to emotional distress. It's not from the devil. It's not a temptation. It's simply your brain's way of telling you you're in emotional distress. The temptation is, you're thinking about this stuff all the time. You're a really bad person. The temptation is, I'm defective because I'm having this thought right now. The temptation is, like, I can't be good because if I was good, I wouldn't have these thoughts right now. The temptation is always a lie. The thought is just a thought. And so what needs to happen is I need to rebuild this pathway from emotional dysregulation to a real person. And it can be our Lord. It can be the Blessed Mother. It helps when it's a real person, too. But that's why, like, in the midst of impure thoughts, Jesus, you're welcome in my thoughts right now. 
is so important because it's answering the need for communion with a person and trying to reconnect us to a person that brings us back into regulation. Okay, and we're going to talk about that as we get into original sin. And my slides are working, and it's time to take a break. Patty, did you want to ask your question, or you want to write it down? I'm overwhelmed. You, when you say all of this is in your heads, you mean you have all these like avoidant, fearful people like this? Okay, so the solution or the cure for insecure attachment is what? It's a secure person who always loves them. No matter which one it is, right? No matter which one it is. And so as we, like your approach to all those people is going to be kind of the same. Right, you know I'm always going to be here for you. You know that you can trust me. Like I'm, you're very important to me. But there's a lot of people in the room right now, so I'm going to give you the attention that you need, and then go on. Um, like to love them with the love you've received from the Lord. So when you say the only solution is prayer, yes, because if you don't know the love of Christ, and if you're not secure in our Lord you won't be able to be that secure base of love for somebody else. Right? So when people ask me, like, what do we do for parents to help them to be a better base of security for their kids? Well, like, they have to be converted. Like, we have to convert the parents. The parents all have to go through Alpha, or the parents all have to go through some kind of intentional discipleship program. You know, that's where I would love to get to in the diocese, but it might take a while before we're mandating all the First Communion parents to go on this retreat or to go through this program for discipleship. But if we really want to like, help those kids, like, that's what they need. And we need to do better parent education starting at baptism class and moving forward. You know, starting back in marriage preparation moving forward. But it's all about conversion. And it takes place one person at a time. Like, I mean, and once you have like people that start to experience that, then they go and tell other people. Right? What does Unbound do? Unbound is a place where insecure people come to know security in Christ. That's what it is. That's what that ministry is. Jesus can't possibly love me because I have all these wounds. Okay, so now we're going to speak the Father's blessing into those wounds. <coughs> And we're going to try to facilitate an experience where even when you thought it was impossible that God loved you, our Lord loved you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And And then there's an experience of mercy. And in that experience of mercy, we come to know our identity. Okay. All right. We're going to take a break. Take like 10 minutes, and I'll try to get the rest of this set up. Thanks. Thank you.